When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and I'm going to hit you str- with a fact, extraordinary fact, straight from, the, for, straight from the off, OK? There'll be more commentary on this week's WST Classic than there was on Match of the Day this week. <laughs> now, we're not a topical news show, you know, it's not, it's not news at 10, I'm not Sandy Gall. Uh, one for the teenagers, but um, an extraordinary situation, really. Uh, the WST Classic, by the way, that starts on Thursday. It's a ranking event that's replaced the Turkish Masters. Uh, be on Matchroom Live, and uh, I, by the time this podcast comes out, I think it will have been announced that it's four ninety nine to access the whole week's coverage, which I think is pretty reasonable, really. I thought it might be more than that. Um, at seven days, five quid. Um, I'm sure people will say, "Well, we don't want to pay anything," but that, the world doesn't work like that, does it? Um, but anyway, I hope people will join us. I'm along with Dominic Dale. Um, the only uh, caveat to that is if Dominic, because <laughs> Dominic is playing, if he gets on a run in the event, we might have to rethink things. But at the moment, I'm scheduled to be working with Dominic. Stephen Hallworth's actually doing the first day as well, um, although he's also playing in the tournament. But anyway, we're hoping to um, have your company, so it would be great if you could join us. But uh, match of the day, <laughs> what a stinker that was on Saturday. 20 minutes, no presentation, no commentary. Uh, for those people outside Britain saying, what are you talking about? It's, it's our very much-cherished uh, football highlights programme. Been going for six decades, and the presenter Gary Lineker. You know, I'm not going to go into all this because people, I think, are fed up of it now. Now already, but he basically he said something on Twitter that uh, the BBC didn't like, and essentially got sus- well. It wasn't so much the BBC didn't like it; it was it was sort of various right wing newspapers. And rather than just letting the story die down, which it would have done, let's be clear, after a few days it would have gone away. The BBC <laughs> managed to take what was a kind of annoying set of headlines and make it into a full blown crisis. <laughs> Yes, they did. And um, and it is still raging as we speak. So at the moment, the football coverage on all BBC outlets is, is much reduced. But as I say, the, the WST Classic is not involved in any of that. And we will have our, our, our commentary from Thursday morning on Matchroom Live. And uh, I hope uh, that, uh, that you can join us. Now, uh, the six reds, of course, have finished. We'll get on to that shortly. But well done to Dinge. And we, I think everybody, if you like snooker, you kind of like Ding. He plays the game in the right way. There's something about him which is very likeable. I think partly it's because we followed his journey from a very young age. You know, he came over to, to Britain as a, a term pro at 16. He won his first ranking event the week he turned 18. And has carried a lot of the sort of Chinese snooker boom on his back. And maybe more than ever now, we're looking to him to kind of rescue things after what's been going on. So I think a lot of people are happy to see Ding win. We've got, had some feedback about the six reds. One thing I'll say before we get into that is, I must say I thought it was very well presented by the Thai uh, promoters. The, the venue looked superb. They made, made a real effort. I think there were certain things that, you know, we could even incorporate into, you know, the events here. I mean, just the sort of the tunnel they walked in looked really modern. Um, it looked great. It came across well. Obviously, six reds, you know, not, he's not to everyone's taste, but I think it's, it's, it's close enough to normal snooker that it was, uh, there were some exciting matches and it was interesting. It did slow up as the week went on, as it got more serious. There was a lot more safety, I thought, towards the end of the tournament. 
Um, it was very free flowing early on, but you know when the money goes up and Ding won just over a hundred thousand, you know it's understandable that it becomes a big deal because that's worth more than than some ranking events. So uh, well done to him. Now we'll get onto the, the correspondence about that shortly, but um, I'm going to start this week with Steve Hooley, and this is a terrific email. He says, uh, Steve says, I'm a big dedicated fan of the podcast. I thought I'd share my experience from last night. I was waiting to pick up a passenger in a terminal at Heathrow. I'm one of those chauffeurs who holds up the name boards. When along came Stuart Bingham. I assume he was returning from the sixth race tournament in Thailand. I managed to catch his eye, and as he passed, I said, Hi, Stuart, how are you? He replied with a genuine smile. Fine, thanks, mate. To be fair, some of my customers can be a bit crabby when coming off a long-haul flight, but I was impressed by Stuart's attitude, a top bloke. Hope he goes on to do well at the World Championship. Also, he had a very impressive-looking custom-made, I assume, suitcase for his queue. So his queue, in its normal case, fitted inside it. I wonder if he has the best queue suitcase of all the professionals. Could you ask around and let me know? Keep up the good work, Dave, and here's hoping for a great end to a fascinating season. Well, thank you, Steve. There's plenty in this. Um, you, I mean, Stuart, I'm not at all surprised he was he was like that, because that's how he is. He's a very, very uh, amenable sort of bloke. But um, the Q case business, yes. I mean, that, that, I, I, we don't have an official ranking list, but that sounds like he's uh, he's the top of it for now. But this this really uh, could be the start of a new feature, which is uh, brief meetings with snooker players and a banal conversations you've had with them. Because this <laughs> this is terrific. How Stuart? Hi Stuart, how are you? Fine, thanks, mate. That's perfect, and we want more of that. Um, just fleeting conversations. You, if you've seen, you know. Uh, I don't know, Tom Ford in the local post office or, or Ian Burns, you know, in, in, a, in a bakery. Anything like that will take. Um, fleeting meetings with with snooker players and what, what small chat did you have with them? And we don't want big conversations, we want small conversations. So do let us know. But let's get on to the six reds. We've had two emails uh, in, in, in particular about this. <coughs> one is a short one from Duncan Burrs and one from Colin is a longer one. So Duncan says... And it is short. He said, I honestly didn't think this would be so good to watch. I didn't see the early stages, but the semi-finals and final were very enjoyable. And Colin has gone into a bit more detail. He says, I've never caught the six race before, probably due to the time of day it's been on and being at work in the past. Having watched a lot of the tournament this year, I found it very enjoyable and I thought I would share some observations. I thought it would be pretty much the same as a conventional frame of snooker, just fewer reds to pop, but I was wrong. Firstly, I, I observed that there was more of a uniformity to the outcome of the break-off with a regular outcome being four of the reds staying where they were, one red bouncing off the side cushion and going back into the pack, and the final red going towards the black off the top cushion. uh, Less moving parts, I guess, leading to a different start. This often meant that the opponent was in trouble straight off the break, and with less reds to aim at. Then I observed just a different range of shots to the norm, limited shots nestling into the pack if snooker behind a bolt ball due to less reds, therefore more fine glancing off a red, off a couple of cushions instead when snookered. Less of a need to break the pack open, say from the blue or black, as as it's already done. All makes a refreshing change and alternative to the norm. You can have really quick frames that last 10 pots. Then, uh, hang on, I've lost (laughs) lost your email here. Uh, You can have... uh, uh, You see other people would edit this, but I'm going to carry on. Oh yes, you can have really quick frames that last 10 pots, then snooker's required, but also some great safety exchanges where almost the next mistake is fatal due to the limited reds on the table. The crowd seem very appreciative and knowledgeable. Is there a reason why it's held in Thailand? And are they generally keener on the shorter format? Well, I'll answer that. I mean, yes, it is popular in Thailand. It's really where it's sort of established a foothold six reds and, and sort of in a lot of the Asian events there, they do play six reds. So it is known to 
the Thai crowd and obviously Tepchara knew getting to the final sort of backs that up a little bit although I think in general a sort of open form of snooker um, suits him um, the semi-final between Onnu and Vafai was terrific and determined it had all the elements for an exciting match great potting unexpected misses high tension frames going down to the final colours another obvious plus point from six reds it was captivating as someone who watches almost every tournament that's on, things like Six Reds and the Shootout really do provide excellent variety to the tour. I'll certainly make sure I set my alarm to tie time for the 2024 Six Reds Championship. There are dangers, of course, in tinkering too much with the traditional game that we all love. Is there scope for a Ten Reds format so we can see what changes that throws up to the great game? Uh, I'll get my coat, maybe along with Tep Trier's two-tone shirt. Well, yes, I mean, that shirt was extraordinary. It had one, one arm white, one arm black. Uh, Put uh, some of us in mind of Mark Johnston Allen's waistcoat years ago at the Crucible, although uh, Tep Chai got to the final, Mark uh, Mark did not. But thank you uh, for those positive comments, Colin. And uh, Dermot in uh, Dublin has also written in, I'm enjoying the six reds in Thailand, finding myself wondering if a player's flight and accommodation is paid for in such far-flung places, or if the losing first-round prize money pays for these expenses. Otherwise, how would low-ranked players justify the expensive trip? Secondly... And revisiting an oriental theme, is there a complete disconnect between the hyperbole... Now, I see hyperbole or hyperbole, I'm never quite sure. Hyperbole, I say. I know this is not why you've written in, but uh, I'm going with hyperbole. Uh, a bit about the popularity of the game in China and the reality. The WST narrative is that the game is huge in the land of the dragons, and yet, ding aside, it is clear that Chinese players have a modest existence in Sheffield. If a sport was truly huge in such a vast market... The player endorsements alone would mean for superstar lifestyles. The lucrative Chinese events, often sparsely attended, are welcome, but the wanton hyperbole, some say hyperbole, is tiresome. Uh, well, it's not really, is it? Um, and I think the mistake you're making is the idea that the players always benefit from money that's being made um, from these tournaments. The promoters benefit. Uh, it doesn't always trickle down to the players. And the Chinese um, situation is specific because it is... To a degree, state controlled in China, you know, the, the government kind of get involved with who sponsors what, and it, you know, it's on, it's on some, it has been on some school curriculums. Um, so it's a slightly different thing. I know one Chinese player, and he, you know, unfortunately, he has been caught up in the in the the, the, the business that's coming to a head in the, the hearing. But he did get a, a very good sponsor for this season, who I, who I believe now, you know, understandably, have dropped him. So he got he was in line to get a lot of money from that. Um, so it's not entirely true what you say, but it's also, it, it's a slightly different, um, thing, I think, for the Chinese. They, they do get, I mean, you say, um, how did you put it? Modest existence. Well, it's not that modest. I mean, a lot of them have got their own homes. Um, I mean, Yambing Tao, we've seen his home, but of course he only just moved into it when Rob Walker <laughs> famously called around that time. I, mean, I imagine he got it furnished since then. Um, anyway, <coughs> Joe Baines. Now, Joe, uh, thankfully emailed a second time because for some reason, Joe, I didn't get your first email. But because you sent a second one, I saw the first one in the body of that email. So I'm able to read both of them out. Sometimes it, people do say sometimes, oh, you haven't read my email out. Some, some of them go missing for some reason. I don't know why. But anyway, all is well. We've got, we've got both emails. He says, I'm a long-time listener of the podcast. Uh, it's given me many hours of great listening over the last few years and helped me keep... It says, oh, help me keep semi-sane during the lockdowns. Well, more than I did when I was doing the podcast. Anyway, uh, he says, I look forward to listening every week. I wanted to say thanks for this, and also thanks and congratulations for your contributions to the sport over the last 25 years. Coincidentally, I'm 25. Hope this doesn't make you feel so old. 
Uh, well, thank you, Joe, for, ma <laughs> for, for making that clear. Uh, and thank you for your comments. He says, with the match-fixing scandal and potentially all ten players receiving lengthy bans if found guilty, I think it could be a great opportunity for Will Snooker to make the best out of a bad situation and try to grow the game with how they replace the players. My ideas for extra places would be Asian, Pan-American, uh, African and Oceanic under-21 champions. Two more spots from the Asian Oceanic Q School, two more from the CBS A Tour and the rest from Q School. Well, all the players in question... Uh, a match fixing being Chinese, I think it's important to replace these players with a wide range of different nationalities to try to help grow the game worldwide. The tour is already too UK centric and just replacing the match fixers, I think we should say they're alleged match fixers, just to be clear, uh, with players from Q School or top ups would probably exacerbate this. I understand the under 21 winners from a few of the continents I mentioned won't be as good as the players at Q School that will just miss out. But giving one a tour card could give them the opportunity to gain invaluable experience at a young age on tour and potentially flourish into a star of the game from a different place to what we're used to seeing, which would be brilliant. It's been great uh, seeing the four players from the, Oce from the Asian Oceanic Q School on tour this season. They've all picked up good wins, proving they're good enough. I think they just maybe need some more experience to become top 64 players. And the CBS tour has produced some great talents over the last few years. Why not give a few more a chance? This would also help fill the Chinese void being left by the players potentially leaving. I appreciate no one has been sentenced yet, and it could be any amount of time before they have, so this plan could be impossible. But these are just my ideas on where I'd be giving tour cards if I were in Jason Ferguson's shoes. Just to add to this email, Andres Petrov just tweeted about a continental Europe-only Q school. This is a great idea with all the great talent emerging in Europe at the moment. On that latter, thank you, Joe, for the email. On that latter point, I do think it is true that um, talent is emerging in Europe. There's several talented players. Of course, Julian Leclerc, Belgium, is already on the tour. He's been in the shootout final. But there's several others um, who are threatening to break through. Uh, Florian Nursler, recently from Austria, got to the final of that Q Tour playoff. And I wouldn't be against a European Q school. I mean, obviously, these things have to be funded, um, but it does seem... You're right when you say the game's too UK-centric. I don't think that's really a point to be argued. It hasn't grown sufficiently away from Britain. I mean, Britain is still a huge market, and it's important that that market is, is still nurtured. But so many people have to travel now to the UK, and it just seems we should be maybe more travelling to them. Um, and you're right when you say giving young players from around the world a chance, it can bear fruit. Ding is an obvious example of that. Ding was given wild cards early on to nurture his career. Uh, Neil Robertson as well. He won an Australian qualifying event when he was 16 um, and then he got back on through the World Under-21 Championship which he won. So th these guys the talented sort of youngsters particularly from outside the UK they do need a bit of a helping hand. People want to claim it's a level playing field. It isn't. Clearly it isn't. If you're British you have a massive advantage. Um, so I'm not against anything you say. It'd be interesting how all this is worked out because I suspect the problem is, you see, that, that the hearing is likely to go into kind of May time when the season is over. Um, and these players will remain on the ranking list. Whatever happens to these players, and we can't prejudge it, they're going to remain on the ranking list. So Q School will already be happening then. Um, and I suspect the number of places will remain... As advertised, not, it's not going to change. But there may, and I, and I you know, repeat the word may, be a need to find new players you know, for next season. Now, whether that would just be straight a top-up system, 
maybe there is an opportunity, as you say in your email, Joe, uh, to, to actually put some things in place to ensure that there's people aren't just sort of being coming off a top-up list. There's actually more imaginative ways maybe to find new players. Um, Jason Ferguson, the, the WPBC chairman, you know, this is something that he's very passionate about. Um, developing snooker in new markets and finding new 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 stars. So I'm sure he's he's looking at this right now. Um, but uh, some of it is obviously uh, one issue is time, in terms of the time frame of these hearings and what might happen. And then the, the next thing is what actually does happen because ultimately, if if, if players are not um, going to be banned, then obviously they continue on the tour and there won't be the need for so many places. But in general, I think a lot of what you say is very sensible. Now, our dear friend, friend James Cook from America, he says, Right, Dave, hope all's well. I must apologise for being a bit behind on the current Snooker Scene podcast library. In fact, I've only just listened to Bumper Edition Part 1. This is not my fault, though, as I was planning to catch up on the podcast during a 19-hour drive from New York to Florida, only for a friend to scupper those plans and buy me a flight instead. So whilst I'm grateful for the expedited journey, it did cost me a chance to catch up on the podcast. Well, I, th- I mean, some people, James, would say you should have driven, you know, just so you could listen to it. But anyway, he says, anyway, as we know, every cloud has a silver lining, and this has proven to be the case. In fact, it is serendipitous timing. Uh, that's the first use of the word serendipitous, I think, on this podcast. Um, uh, as the bumper edition part one raised the question of promotion of events and snooker in general. And just yesterday, at the time of writing, Stephen Hendry celebrated 100,000 viewers to his YouTube Q-Tips channel. It made me think, why can't WST do something like this? Hendry has some commercial interest in doing it, merchandise, ad revenue, etc. But I believe he's doing it for his love of snooker and to promote the game. Yes, he has star power and influence to get the big names to appear on the channel, but this is not an overnight success. He's worked hard on the content over a few years now to build and grow the following on the back of excellent content. WST has tried with Bayswatch and Rob Walker going to visit players at home as well as the WST podcast, and some of these have been good. But it's just not sustained, so any of the following... May, that he may have attracted is lost. It seems that given access to players, a recognisable brand, and most importantly a content-hungry fan base, as proven by Hendry's Q-tips, WST could and really should do better. You mentioned on the Bumper Edition Part 1 that there was a new marketing team on board. They could do a lot worse than take notice of what Stephen Hendry is doing in terms of content marketing to promote the sport. Rant over. Well, thank you, James, and... Uh, some good points, but I mean, I think that I think most snooker fans who've, who've seen Stephen Hendry's channel would agree it's, the content there is great. It's pitched just about right. There's plenty there for snooker fans, but if you're not, you know, a, a devoted follower of snooker, maybe someone who listens to this podcast, there's, pl- there's plenty there if you're not, and it's quite accessible. It's fun, um, but they also talk about some interesting things. I think the players that go on there have been very relaxed. Stephen Hendry's really good on it. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line, and good on him. Um, you mentioned some of the things Will Snooker Tour have done. I'll say right from the start, okay, I know all the guys in the Will Snooker media team, they're friends of mine, they all do their best. They have to work within the resources that they have. I've always said the same thing, which is there's not enough of them, that there should be more of them, because if there were more of them, they could produce more content. Um, They make quite a bit of money for Will Snooker Tour and, and by extension Matchroom. You know, we're talking high six figures through all the activities they do. The problem is, as I see it, that money just goes into the company. If if a percentage of it, say 20% of that came back to the media team. So say the media team, let's just say they make 600 grand a year for World Snooker. If they got 20% of that back, 
So what's that? I'm sure the math. 120 grand, right? That's money they could then reinvest into more content, better content. So maybe next year they'll make 900 grand for the company, you know? But that doesn't happen at the moment. It just sort of goes into the general sort of company coffers. Um, they've done a few things which they've not persevered with. You mentioned Bayswatch. I always thought it was a good idea. It wasn't always that well executed, but it was a good idea. It is a good idea to have a monthly magazine programme. And some of the other things, you know, that they could do, they've sort of, you know, I mean, I was involved in one. I did that walk <laughs> around the canal in Leicester. That was last summer. Um, I don't think they've done one since. Now, they may be connected. The fact I was involved may have killed it off. I don't know. But things like that, away from a snooker table and away from, you know, all about the, what match, you know, how did you play and tell us about the match. More lifestyle stuff is definitely a good thing. They need the players to take part, but also they need to have a bit more courage of their convictions. Actually, set out your stall. We're going to do this, and we're going to make it work somehow. Um, and yeah, it could be better. Equally, it could be worse. I mean, they you know they they do actually do a lot of consistent stuff um, on all their platforms, and a lot of it is really good. So uh, you know, it, it's a mixed bag. But I do think they could. I know that they've looked at Hendry's stuff and kind of thought, yeah, this is actually more in line what we should be doing so maybe th- there's a way of you know doing that themselves in the future but i i'm i'm loath to uh be too critical because I, I do think the main problem is there's just not enough of the guys to do it and you know they can't work 24 7 a lot of you know putting together a video is not a 10 minute operation it can take hours you know and and you know they're at torments as well having to work on torments so it's not always um that straightforward but i think uh in general yeah i think <coughs> what henry's doing definitely has been a great boost to snooker and maybe others could could learn from it as you say now we've got a couple of world championship predictions are coming in scott pease he says first i want to make a brief defense of short format matches john higgins just won the championship league for the fourth time beating judd trump in the final between higgins and trump they've won seven out of 20 championship league clearly there's a knack for them as for my world championship prediction i'm going with neil robertson i don't have any reasoning beyond that he's really good at snooker well that's, that's good enough reason isn't it to put little stock in any talk about carrying form forwards, whatever the phrase is. Being the informed player didn't do Neil any good last year, nor Judd the two years before. Of course, the ultimate predictor for Crucible success is who draws Tepchar and New. His first round opponents and their performances have been. Okay, so this is players who've drawn Tepchar and New. 2018, John Higgins reached the final. 2019, Judd Trump won the title. 2020, Ronnie O'Sullivan won the title. 2021, he didn't qualify, but he would have played Ronnie, who proceeded to lose in the second round. 2022, John Higgins, he reached the semi-finals. Well, <laughs> that's one way, I suppose, of, uh, of working it all out. I mean, uh, uh, of course, Trump really should, probably should have lost to Tepchai. I know that's all, the whole history of sport is littered with what could have happened. But, I mean, he, he was a bit unlucky in a way in that decider, I thought, Tepchai and New. But uh, as for Neil Robertson, well, I mean, you, you make the point that, of course, the last few seasons he's gone in as the four man and not won it. There's a theory, I think Neil Foles has, has, has said this, that he feels... A quieter season may suit Robertson going in. Um, I'm a little sceptical of that. I think actually he's looked a bit rusty. Um, I think he needs matches. I think everyone needs matches. Um, but we'll see. I mean, listen, uh, I'm going to talk about this more nearer the time. I'd love Neil Robertson to win it. I think he's uh, he'd be great for snooker and, and you know, he, he would be... For him, obviously, a second world title, which feels it feels like he should be a multi world champion. I know that's easy to say, but he's clearly because he's winning all these other tournaments. It feels like 
another world title would not go amiss. But we'll see, because it's not long now. What's five weeks, I think, to uh, to the Crucible? Angela Beatty's also written, and she said, I just thought I'd write in with my predictions of who I think will win the World Championship this year. I predict Ronnie O'Sullivan will win his eighth world title. Despite his quiet season so far, I believe he's capable of winning it. I'm not a betting person, but if I was encouraged to bet on someone, it would be Ronnie O'Sullivan without a shadow of a doubt. Having said that, I wouldn't rule out Judd Trump and John Higgins as close contenders after O'Sullivan. By the way, I loved the Two Bumper podcast last week. It was a, What a treat it was to have two 50-minute episodes. Keep up the good work as always. Well, thank you, Angela. I think the fact that you've gone with Ronnie and then you, you've said there, Trump or Higgins, I think a lot of people this year are not sort of clear who they think is going to win. You can make a lot of cases for players and just as many against those players because there's nobody really dominating. Obviously, Mark Allen has done. The question is, has that purple patch come and gone? Um, we'll see. Obviously, he's, he's not never really done anything at the Crucible. Uh, Ronnie is, I don't think he's a bad shout at all, obviously. I mean, you know, you could never say that. But again, he's not shown great form really this season. Um, whether that makes any difference, we'll see. But uh, of course, he'll be at that top of the draw, the number one seed. Uh, he might be out on day one. We don't know. He might end up winning late. Again, we will find out. Now, Kelvin Jordan writes, Many thanks for your entertaining and informative podcast. This is my first email to you, so please be gentle. A couple of random questions below, but feel free to just read one, read out the one you find most interesting, or at least the least, the less dull and unoriginal. Oh, well, listen, we're, we're an open book here. We're an open book. And we've got nothing else as well. That's the other thing, Kelvin. Uh, he says, First, given there was TV interest, a venue and sponsorship available, how receptive do you think today's players would be to the relaunch of the team World Cup with three players per team. My first memories of snooker include greatly enjoying watching the event with legendary teams such as Reardon, Griffiths and Mountjoy, the Canadian trio of Thorburn, Stevens and Werbeneck, and the rather, rather fractious Irish team of Higgins, Dennis Taylor and someone else, possibly Eugene Hughes. I mean, just to, to cut in there, fractious is the word. I mean, let's be, let's be clear about this. <laughs> let's be clear about this. When they played in the Northern Ireland team together, Alex Higgins threatened to have Dennis Taylor shot. <laughs> Dennis was the captain at the time. So it was it fractious is, is, you know, there's other words that could be used there, but I think that's, that's certainly one of them. Anyway, Kelvin con- continues. I know there have been two man World Cups more recently, but two players does not a team make, as Shakespeare never said. Looking at the rankings, there could be eight to ten countries able to field three players. Would players enjoy competing for their country and bonding or not as a team? Would Ronnie enjoy being in a team with Mark Selby and Judd Trump, given they are currently the top three ranked Englishmen and so might form the England team? What a team that would be. The event could be called the Davis Cup after Joe, Fred and Steve. That sounds a good name for a team event with an individual sport. Just don't mention it to the tennis folk. Well, before we come on to your second point, I mean, I always liked the old World Team Cup. It, obviously, the, the matches were quite short. I mean, the basic format, for those who don't remember, in the 80s, were the matches, there was three player teams. The matches were best of nine. So you'd have, let's say it was England against Australia. So Steve Davis would play Eddie Charlton over just two frames. So say that was one all. Then Jimmy White would play John Campbell. Jimmy might win 2-0. So England are 3-1 up. Then Neil Folds might play Warren King. That's one all, so it's 4-2. Now now Steve comes back in, maybe against John Campbell. Campbell beats him 2-0, so it's 4-all. And so Jimmy White goes out to play Warren King in the decider. Jimmy wins it, so England win 5-4. That's basically how it worked. So it was, all, it was quite bitty. But from a spectator point of view, you got to see six players in an afternoon. You know, you got to see some really big stars of the game and also some players who you wouldn't see that often on TV, like Warren King and John Campbell. They weren't on TV every week. 
So you got to see players from around the world, and the problem with it was, it, you know, it wasn't a World Cup in the way that, you know, football or cricket or rugby or, or basically any sport has, because it was so limited. It was limited to the, the sort of British Isles teams, you know, maybe Australia, Canada, and then they would sort of bodge together a rest of the world team, which was just sort of a South African here, a Maltese player there. Um, they got to the final one here, Dino Kane of New Zealand, Selena Francisco, South Africa, and Tony Drago of Malta. Um, so it, the reason that it went to two man teams when it came back, or two player teams, because I mean, Kurt Mathlin famously played with his wife in Norway, uh, Anita. But, um, the reason for that is they could get more teams in it and then you can sell it to more international television markets and also it looks more credible to have 24 teams in the World Cup than to have eight. But, I mean, I think it, I, I think it would be actually really good. You can find top amateurs to top the, the field up. But look at Belgium. They, they would have three really good professionals. Luca Brussel, Julian Leclerc, and, uh, and uh, their other player who's, <laughs> oh, Ben Mertens, of course, yeah, Ben Mertens. That's a really good team. And you, you're not going away from the professional game. Uh, obviously, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland would have, uh, would have teams. Um, the Republic, I think, just about. Aaron Hill, Ken and Fergal. Um, and other countries as well. OK, Australia, they have two players on the tour now, but they could call up, you know, one of their leading amateurs. It's a chance for them to to get a bit of uh, coverage. China, obviously. You know, there's, you could basically do it, I think. Hong Kong, you'd have Marco Fu, On Yi, Andy Lee. Um, so, yeah, I, if the World Cup comes back, I would love to see teams of three rather than teams of two. But... Um, whether any of that will happen, I don't know. And whether they'll go back to the old format of the 80s, again, we will see. Kelvin continues, on a more niche, but I'm sure you'll agree, important topic. Why do some players take their cue case to the table and others don't? When did this habit start? Who was the first player to do it? Presumably it's personal preference, but are they worried their expensive and luxurious case may get stolen if left backstage? Or afraid they will drop and break their cue on the way into the arena if not securely packaged? I do always feel sorry for a player who has just lost badly but can't leave the table until, the, until they've fiddled around packing away their queue. If it was me, I'd want to be away ASAP. Well, Kelvin, I mean, I, I haven't monitored this exactly. You know, like Brian Hanrahan, counting them all out and counting them back in again. There's another contemporary reference. Um, but I guess the reason they take their queue case out is because there's stuff in it they might need. I mean, you see often players will reach for their bit of sandpaper to work on their tip or there's just stuff in there that they might need, you know. Um, and it's it's a bit of a comfort as well to have it nearby. Um, but if anyone wants to monitor which players take the, the cases out, and which don't, do let us know. Uh, <laughs> don't rush with that, by the way. But if you know, take your time. Uh, <laughs> James Irwin writes. Thanks for continuing with the pod. It's a stable fixture of my listening week. One question: Any update on the documentary that was filmed about Ronnie O'Sullivan last year? You mentioned recently that Netflix is no longer involved, as we had initially been led to believe. Clearly, it would be prudent timing to make the programme available in time for this year's World Championship. But with not that much time to go before the tournament kicks off, I wonder if that's possible at this point. I suspect the reason might be, as is so often the case, money and a streaming platform willing to buy it. Any intel you may be able to share would be very welcome. Well, James, just to say, it's not that Netflix are no longer involved. They were never involved. It was just, it was almost a shorthand went round that, oh, it's a Netflix documentary. It was never actually, there was never any agreement with Netflix it's not to say it won't end up on there, um, but it was never their thing. It was a film that's been made by David Beckham's production company. You know, it's a proper thing. It's um, I'm hearing good things about it, 
The last I heard was that it won't be out in time for the World Championship. It'll be out in the summer. Now, I was surprised by that because I thought the market around the time of the Championship, when people are thinking about snooker, it's a bit like in the UK, certainly. People think about tennis primarily before Wimbledon. Um, but it's not going to be out then. Uh, I think the only problem with that is if he does win an eighth, it's slightly, it's slightly out of date, isn't it? <laughs> if he's won an eighth in the meantime, because... I know it's not just about him winning the seventh, but to many people that is the calling card, the behind-the-scenes stuff at the Crucible, him winning a seventh world title, um, would seem to be a, a massive uh, pull, not just for snooker fans, but people interested in sport. Um, so I heard it might be out at a film festival in the summer, and then I'm sure there will be some deal with a streaming platform or, or a TV broadcaster or whatever. It'll be seen somewhere, clearly. It might be on in the cinema. Um but uh, apparently the summer was the last I heard, so I'm looking forward to seeing it. And I'm sure there's plenty of good stuff on there. Richard Adamphy writes, Obviously, it's great we're able to watch almost all snooker events on catch-up these days, so you aren't tied to the TV schedules. However, one downside is the fact that the length of programme is shown. If you fast-forward, for example, because you watched it live earlier and you're skipping the part of the watch you've already seen, you can see how much of the match is left to go. So that can spoil the result. If someone has a big lead but there's only 15 minutes of the programme to go, then you know there's not enough time for a comeback. One simple workaround could be to pad out the video for maybe two or three hours at the end with, for example, a caption saying that the programme is over. A more advanced solution would be to have a spoiler-free user setting where, if selected, would not show how long each programme is in the list of programmes available for catch-up viewing and would not show how long to go when fast-forwarding through a programme. Well, I have to be honest, Richard, I'd never considered this before, but what you're saying makes some sort of sense. Yes, I mean, you don't want to know the score before you watch. Um, but this this is nothing new, actually. I mean, I remember very clearly, and I don't know why I remember this, but I remember staying up quite late one night in the in the early 90s, it would have been, I guess. Um, I'm going to say it's the British Open. Anyway, Terry Griffiths was playing Peter Francisco, um, and I always liked watching Terry, and... and Anyway, uh, they were showing highlights of the match. He wasn't live. He was showing highlights quite late at night. And the programme was an hour long, OK? And w- what they used to do, when they came back for an ad break, they'd come back and it would be like a sort of a TV camera and you'd have a face in it, OK? And the, f- the face coming in, I think Francisco was like 4-2 up, coming back for the last part of the programme. And they came out of the ad break. Stay with this, OK? There's a point to it. They came, they came out of the ad break and you would expect, because Terry was the higher-ranked player obviously back then but it wasn't his face it was Francisco's and that basically told you he was going to win the match and he did so it kind of did take away any sense of drama of the occasion there was 15 minutes left he was 4-2 up there's his face he's going to win um, now what you're saying is uh, this is the kind of modern version of that um, it's, it's something that uh, it doesn't apply to every sport you see because like a, a sort of say a ma- the marathon that's going to last you know, well, they're going to do it in just over two hours. So say so the broadcast is three hours. You can't give away who's won from the length of the programme. Same with a football match. A football match is going to last 90 minutes plus. You can't give away who's won by the length of the programme. What you're saying is you can give away who's won a snooker match by the length of the programme. I'll pass that on, actually. I mean, I can't promise any change, but I will pass that on to the powers that be because I, I think you make a good point, actually. Uh, we've got a couple more emails. Now, Brian Campbell. Now, Brian, I think um, you may have... I think this email was sent before last week's episode dropped. I think it was a, just a very small crossover period because I did address some of these issues last week. But I'm happy to read the email out. 
She said, forgive me if this is a long email. However, there's a lot to pick through regarding Eurosport and Rhianne Evans following her quotes in the Mirror newspaper at the weekend. So the, I did talk about this last week. Rhianne was saying that she feels that uh, there's not enough money in the women's game and their circuit should be sort of fully funded in effect. So firstly, given Eurosport's coverage of snooker, it was very surprising to see an official tweet referring to the prize money for the men's world title. There's no such thing in this day and age. Well, that's certainly true, Brian. I mean, that's just a mistake. Um, there's not a men's world championship. It's the world professional championship, and there's a separate women's world championship. So it, it was just a, uh, an error from someone who's probably got you know seven other things to do that morning. Brian says, secondly, I was stunned by the following quote from Rianne. Why not, and this is a quote, why not back the women? It happens in other sports. Why do we have to mix it? It doesn't happen in other sports. Why? Just because it isn't a physical sport. I totally believe in equality of opportunity, and women seem to have this in snooker, where they could qualify for the main tour of RQ school by winning the women's world title or finishing high enough, uh, high, high up enough in their own tour. For Rianne to question why snooker has to be mixed, in my mind, goes against the totally correct ethos that snooker is inclusive and the only thing that should matter is your ability on the table. I'm guessing Rianne is feeling like this because, good as she may be, unfortunately her results in the main professional game have been poor in terms of the number of wins she's accrued despite some close results. But to me, she's coming across as wanting to have a cake and eat it. The opportunity for any snooker player, male or female, is there to earn plenty from the sport if they're good enough. Generally, I do appreciate, though, how to get more girls interested in snooker if you can't see women play. And the more people who play, the stronger pool of talent the game has in the future. Taking on board what you said a few podcasts ago about people not just pointing out problems, as that could be negative, and how about some suggestions, I'd like to advocate something I suggested last year on the Talking Snooker podcast. See, this Now, I did ask last week, I was trying to remember who suggested this, it turned out it was Brian, so this is good. He said, on the BBC, there is very much a climate of positivity and inclusiveness, so why don't the snooker authorities take the idea of a female pot black to them? I did say last week, Brian, I thought this was a good idea. He says, uh, from the BBC's point of view, there are economies of scale. There's a whole series could be recorded in one day, comprising of four quarters, two semis and a final. There's also the brand there etched in the viewing public's minds. And as snooker seems to continue to update its image, Abigail Davis would be perfect to present it. Abigail is already part of the snooker family on the BBC, clearly loves the sport, and is a young presenter with whom many younger viewers will identify. I totally respect your views and it seems a podcast like yours is the perfect forum to discuss ideas as on social media <laughs> sometimes things can end up being uneducated or sexist with no room for nuance or informed comment. It'll be great to hear your comments as I may learn something as you are undoubtedly very knowledgeable about all aspects of the game and have a knack of putting forward balanced informed opinion which is fabulous to listen to each week. Well, thank you, Brian. That's kind of you. But actually, I think you said it all there, actually. I think, I think it's a good idea as a sort of showcase the danger with a showcase is you still need a circuit because a showcase will inevitably feature four, maybe eight players. That doesn't do much for the other the other hundred players who, who want to play on the women's tour. But it's definitely the case that uh, Rian's argument is that that people should see women playing other women. They shouldn't just be part of a game dominated by men. And I do understand that. Having said that, there's an opportunity in snooker to have equality, as you as you've laid out. There's an op- there's an opportunity for women to get on the tour. And, you know, some of them matches and, and, you know, we're still in the early stages of that, really. We, we, we'll see, you know, down the line how that develops. Um, but uh, Rianne's argument is that you should see women play women, in which case a pop black style event would be a perfect idea. The problem is you've got to get <laughs> a broadcaster to agree to it. You mentioned the BBC, you know, it's whether they would be interested in that or not. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's been suggested to them. Um 
how it would be packaged, how, how it would work. These are all things that have got to be worked out. But as an idea, I think it's a good one. Um, and yeah, I think it's a good one. But I mean, I can't, can't really put it any, any stronger than that. I did, as I said, I did discuss this last week. I think it's unrealistic to expect millions of pounds to pour into a women's circuit. Um, if people are going to put money into snooker, they're more likely to put it into the professional circuit. That's just a fact. It's governed by market forces and it's very hard to get away from that. But maybe your idea, you know, is a way of at least establishing some of the female players as more identifiable to an audience, um, which can be, can be no bad thing. We'll end this week with Alex Lee. I hope this mail reaches you well. Your podcast is the best in the world and you're so great you should be awarded an OBE or a knighthood for services to niche snooker banter. I'll cut to the chase because time is money. Just on the on the knighthood or OBE thing, uh, the knighthood I think is what I would take there. I think if you're given a choice, you know, let's be honest, we're, you know, we can we can rail against the honest system all we like, but given a choice, just getting tables in restaurants about anything, and also impresses people abroad. If you're a sir, <laughs> anyway, I, I, it won't be happening. So I think we can we can we can uh, move past that. He said, "You'll be delighted to hear I have a sensible, progressive, and forward-facing solution to the problems created by the misrule." So this is Alex's idea. So in miss number one, the usual rules apply with the addition that the opponent has the option to play the cue ball from anywhere in the D. Miss number two, the usual rules apply with the addition that the opponent has the option to play the cue ball from anywhere behind the ball line. Miss number three, the opponent is given ball in hand to play the cue ball from anywhere on the table. The above solution isn't any, in any way extreme, just to improve a part of the game that needs an overhaul. While snooker is a fantastic sport, it isn't above minor rule changes that would drastically improve it for all concerned, particularly the fans. As you love to say yourself, snooker is nothing without an audience, be it at the venue itself, on TV or via a stream. Obviously there would be the usual toing and froing if the opponent chose to have the balls replaced, but the number of attempts and thus repetitive wasting of everyone's time will be cut right down. Furthermore, there'll be no financial cost incurred by publishing the new rules. Feel free to take the credit for breaking this exciting news when the revised rule is brought in. Well, I'll, I'll remember to do that, Alex. I mean, here's the thing, OK, that the misrule is one of those things that a lot of people sort of say they have a problem with, but it, it wasn't so long ago. The players had a vote whether they wanted to change it and various ideas put forward. In the end, they wanted to keep it as it was. Um, one of the problems with the misrule, actually, it's not the rule itself. It's actually just a simple fact that because players know they're not going to be more severely punished, they don't always make, um, well, put it this way. If there's 15 reds on the table, you can hit a red. Unless you're like literally, you know, the cue ball's locked in a safe, you can hit a red. What they're trying, of course, to do is not leave a pot on, which is, you know, understandable. Um, now it may be that if, if the rule's a bit more draconian and you've laid out some ideas that, that it would, uh, it would mean that players would have to sort of change their approach a little bit. But I don't know. I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure it's that big a deal. Uh, you know, it can get annoying when you're waiting for the balls to be replaced on live TV. But yeah, I think you, you sort of say yourself. Actually, if you start tinkering the rules, you're never quite sure. You're never quite sure where it's going to end up. But anyway, thank you for your ideas. And uh, I, I, I get the feeling one day, probably not that so far in the future, it may actually slightly change. But whether it will change as dramatically as you want, then you know we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Well, that's it. I'm heading off to Leicester this week for the WST Classic. I'm heading there in a mood of great positivity, which I do when I go to any tournament. It's not ideal that Turkish Masters have been called off. And I dare say, you know, there'll be a laundry list of complaints from the usual suspects about this event. You know, the matches aren't long enough. 
it's at the wrong venue, uh, you know, there, there should be commentary on every table, or it's the wrong commentators, or the length of matches is not good enough, or, you know, the format, the roll and roll off isn't good enough. There'll be a long list of, of complaints, because there always are, but I choose to be positive, because I think that's the best way to approach anything, and I'm going to go there and hopefully enjoy it, and it's going to be an important event, because it's going to decide the Tour Championship uh, places, it could well, 80,000 the winner, it could well decide, um, the, you know, the crucible standings, the seedings. At a tour survival, it's going to have an impact on. And it could propel somebody not only into the top 16, but champion of champions, all that stuff. Someone's going to win a tournament. One thing I will say, though, is I don't accept that this is um, in the lineage of the, the old Mercantile Classic. This is, they've given it this name because what, what other name are you going to give it, basically? They've run out of names. It's not the old Mercantile Classic, a larder classic as it was before then. You know, that's not been held for 30 years. I think Steve Davis was the last winner. So, but anyway, that's a, that's a very minor point to, to, <laughs> to quibble about. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And as I say, we'll be on Matchroom Live, myself and Dominic. And uh, do, do tweet us because it's a great opportunity to utilise Dominic, who is a, such a great authority on the history of snooker and billiards. You've got all sorts of interesting anecdotes and, and facts at his, uh, his fingertips and do uh, send, do send questions in for Dominic we're going to have a sort of an Ask Dominic section each day where we'll read out the best ones as I said last week we're going to hopefully get players in who've won matches to join us in the commentary box for, for a chat here and there um, we may have competitions all this is to be decided this week but the bottom line is we're trying to make the best of it so hopefully everyone else in the snooker world will join us in doing that uh, rather than kind of running it all down because that doesn't really get us anywhere and that includes the players, by the way. You know, you know, they, they need to be positive about it as well. Because as I say, someone's going to win a ranking title. And, um, you know, what's wrong with that? Uh, so anyway, uh, I hope uh, to have your company for that. But in the meantime, uh, thanks for all your emails. Do keep them coming in. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, we're proud members of the Sport Social Network. And the, the listenership is up, by the way. This is the extraordinary news. I've got the figures. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's not, it's not sort of EastEnders Christmas special 1986 territory. But the figures are up from last year. Why? I've no idea. <laughs> I've no idea because it hasn't changed in any way. It's just the same rambling stuff from me. But, you know, we are nothing with, with, without our, the contributions from our listeners. I mean, literally nothing. It would be me just sat here talking to myself. Uh, even more so. So, thank you for your continued support. Uh, we're coming up to our 250th episode. Um, I don't know what we're doing for that. Probably nothing, but because it'll probably fall in the middle of the World Championship. But anyway, we're still here. <laughs> That's the bottom line. And uh, I think when, as you get older, you know, I think more and more about that song, uh, that, that well-known song, Enjoy Yourself, It's Later Than You Think. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um it's an extraordinary way to finish, but there we are. That's the, that's the end of the podcast. So, as we always say, until next time, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network.